This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Today, our author is New York Times bestselling writer Piper Kerman. We spoke with her as she was touring the United States talking about her nonfiction book, Orange is the New Black, My Year in a Women's Prison by Spiegel and Growl Random House Books, less than a year after the debut of the fictionalized Netflix program Orange is the New Black based on her life. This one-on-one was done in September of 2014. Now, Piper Kerman was born in Boston and had a family full of educators, attorneys, and doctors. But through a relationship she had with a girlfriend in her 20s, she became involved in the drug trade and was eventually convicted of felonious drug trafficking and money laundering. Her memoir of her time in federal prison became the book Orange is the New Black. The on-screen version of her life in the most-watched series on Netflix that most people are familiar with is a little different than her reality. It's really interesting to watch the process of an adaptation. I often say that they take the book and they put it in a blender and they add some more ingredients <laughs> and they press liquefy. There's all kinds of bits and pieces and ideas and settings from the book that get, you know, turned into something very different in the show, which is great. We'll hear about the differences between her lived experience and the adaptation, her post-incarceration pursuit of prison reform, and her life as a public speaker now. New York Times bestselling writer Piper Kerman is our guest on this episode of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host and interviewer this time, Brenda Madden. Welcome, Piper Kerman. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. You've joked that one of the first questions you get asked, and this goes back to prison guards, to everyone, is what's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this mm. or in a situation like this? And that was the first thing that you you had to deal with as you started to tell the story. Yeah, I found myself uh, sent to prison in 2004. I went to serve 15-month sentence in federal prison. Uh, I was lucky to serve 13 months of that federal sentence with some time off for good behavior. And that uh, sentence was the result of a crime that I'd committed more than a decade before uh, in my early 20s. I had been involved with somebody who was involved with narcotics. And I, like millions and millions of other Americans, I had committed a nonviolent drug offense and many, many years passed before I was ultimately punished for that. Did you ever worry that it would come back to haunt you or did you feel like you were pretty safe? As the years passed between my involvement um, with that woman and with that crime uh, and the actual knock on the door, which came many years later, I thought about it often. Uh, I thought about it with seriousness. It was not something that I was proud of. But certainly as every year passed, I became uh, more and more reflective about it, but it was receding in the rearview mirror. What was your reaction when you answered that doorbell ring? I was living in New York. It was 1998. My, My then boyfriend, Larry Smith, and I had just moved to New York. We both had very exciting new jobs. And the knock on the door came, and two federal agents came to my apartment, and they told me I'd been indicted, and I had better appear at my arraignment where I would be taken into custody. And that was a really terrifying day. I mean, I was very scared. 
I knew that this was very serious. I didn't know, I didn't really understand what the consequences would be, but for sure I was really frightened. Why do you think they did sort of come after you? Were you a valuable witness in this sort of larger picture of who they were trying to, to take down? I doubt that. I doubt that I was a valuable witness. I think the truth of the matter is that millions of the people who have filled up our prisons and jails are low-level, nonviolent offenders. Um, some of them are like me, some of them are different from me in other ways, but there's a lot of people in prison who do not necessarily pose a really pressing threat to public safety. Having read about your story when the book first came out, I didn't realize until I read the book that you did not serve your sentence right away. You had a pretty long delay. Why was that? Well, I was not indicted until many years after I'd committed my crime, and then there was a close to six-year legal delay before I was actually sentenced and sent to prison. So the day that I walked through prison gates in 2004, more than a decade had passed since I had committed my offense. Why was there such a delay? So when I was indicted, you know, uh, I am on an indictment with 13 other people, and at the top of that indictment is a drug kingpin from West Africa, and at the bottom of that indictment is me. <laughs> and the U.S. government sought to extradite that drug kingpin, which they failed to do, ultimately. Um, he was never brought to justice. He was never brought to the United States to face charges. Um, he was taken into custody in uh, Britain on this warrant, but ultimately Britain chose to release him and not to extradite him to the United States. And they wanted you available to testify, and I think you mentioned in the book, but they didn't want you in an orange jumpsuit for it. What were those years like for you? Those intervening years between uh, being indicted and pleading guilty and actually being sent to prison were definitely sort of surreal. Uh, it's a strange thing to sort of know that you're going to go to prison but not really be sure when that might happen. Uh, you know, it's sort of the classic uh, situation that calls for that British slogan from World War II, which is keep calm and carry on, which is what we tried to do. This is a real pivotal time in your life when people are making plans and moving forward with life plans, and you were sort of in this holding pattern. Mm -hmm. That's true. Um, those six years were definitely a complete holding pattern. Um, but, you know, you sort of move on with your life and you sort of muscle through it. And for sure, you delay a lot of decisions that other people around you are making. But ultimately, it was really my term of incarceration and the women that I met while I was incarcerated who had the greatest impact on me and not that sort of uh, time in limbo. I'm sure you can remember vividly the day you drove up to the Federal Correctional Facility in Danbury and what was going through your mind. Can you take us back to that, just having no idea what you were really going in for? Yeah, I mean, on a uh, February morning, you know, I was scheduled to self-surrender at the Federal Correctional Institution for Women in Danbury, Connecticut. And uh, I had really tried to do everything I could to prepare, but it's a strange thing to try to prepare for. I had read whatever I could read about what it's like to be incarcerated, but almost all of those books or all that writing was about men or by men. And so it was very hard to sort of feel like I was really prepared. Um, I remember we drove up, and there's a vicious 25-foot-high, triple-layer razor wire fence around the institution in Danbury. And I looked at that fence and thought, I don't know if I can do this. One of the things you feared going in was the possibility of violence. 
The depiction of prisons and of prisoners is generally a picture of uncontrollably violent places filled with uncontrollably violent people. And I think that's part of the justification for pe keeping so many people in prison. The reality is that about half of the people in prison and jail are there for nonviolent offenses. This is even more true for women. Two-thirds of incarcerated women are there for nonviolent offenses and often very low-level ones. So my experience was one that, you know, I, I really didn't witness uh, violence between women while, while I was incarcerated. There's plenty of conflict in prison. Um, prison is by design a place of scarcity, and whenever you have scarcity, there's going to be conflict. But uh, my f experience is that women rarely resort to violence to get what they want. You said that outside of losing your freedom, the hardest thing was not knowing what was coming next. You can't ask questions. Mm -hmm. Your role is to simply do what you're told, but you don't even always know what that's going to be. The worst thing about incarceration is to be separated from your family and from your friends and from the people who need you on the outside. But one of the other things that is terrible about incarceration, a, a reality for everyone who is incarcerated, is that you have lost control of your life your life is under the control of the institution and the people who run it. And so that uncertainty makes prison never really feel like a completely safe place. That had to be exhausting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that is one of the most difficult, you know, that's a, a fundamental condition or of confinement issue or a fundamental reality of incarceration that is probably true for every single prisoner. Um, and was certainly true for me, is that sort of feeling of anxiety about what might happen next. Because on the one hand, prison is incredibly repetitive and slow and tedious, and on the other hand, it's incredibly uncertain in many ways. You mentioned later on when you were in a, in a, in a different holding facility, almost craving the mundane routine because the uncertainty is, is so much more mm -hmm. difficult to deal with. Mm -hmm. After you were released, uh, when did the book start to sort of take shape for you? Was it something you thought about while you were finishing your sentence, or how did that start to, to evolve? I was not writing the book while I was in prison. Uh, every now and then when things would get really crazy in B-dorm, my bunky Audrey would turn to me and say, Bunky, go home and write a book when, when you get released, and I would laugh. But um, after I came home from prison, People really wanted to know about the experience in as much detail as I was willing to share. And uh, I was encouraged to write about the experience, which I found useful. And, you know, ultimately what I hoped to accomplish by writing the book was to get people to pick up a book about prison who might not otherwise read a book about prison. And I hoped that after they finished the book, they might think differently about who is in prison in this country, uh, for example, women, not necessarily the first people we think of, and why are they there? What are the pathways that people follow into prison? Why, how, do they, how do they land themselves there? And what really happens behind prison walls? Because I think it's quite different than what many people imagine. You've mentioned that, that you didn't necessarily write it for yourself, but in order to tell the stories of the women you met. I mean, I, it's, the book is my story. The book is a, the story of my own journey. And of course, my life intersects with other women's. So any of the women who are depicted in the book might write their own story, and it would be a very different story. And they would have a really different perspective on incarceration, even though they might have been there in the same facility at the exact same time as me. Um, 
So I'm very grateful for the fact that my life intersected with all these other women. They had a profound effect on me. What was their reaction to the book? Did some of them get to read it right away? or? or? There's many women who are depicted in the book who have read the book. Uh, and I got some really lovely, lovely responses. Um, from different folks. Uh, one friend texted me and she said, I just finished reading the book and I didn't want it to end. And, and that really uh, made me feel so happy and grateful. So, In terms of logistics, how did you go from realizing there, there may be something here that I can expand on and actually getting a publisher and, and going forward with it? After I came home from prison, uh, lots of people encouraged me to write about the experience. My husband is a journalist. Uh, we know a lot of writers. So for many people that are in our lives, uh, writing about the world and writing about your own experience is a very natural thing to do. Uh, for me, I was a first-time writer. Nothing, I'd never written anything for publication before. That had never been one of my ambitions. I was encouraged to just sit down and try it. And I chose several discrete things to write about, like my first day in prison or the experience of going on Con Air and being sent to a federal jail in Chicago. Very different than the federal prison where I did most of my time. And so I wrote about those things. And then some folks who work in publishing sort of read those and were like, if you want to write a book, then you can. And so that was really encouraging. You've mentioned that one of your early concerns was how your family might react or feel about the exposure. Mm -hmm. uh, now that it's been so many years since the book was published, what do they think of it? I mean, have they embraced it to a degree? Uh, my family were very encouraging. Uh, both of my parents sort of asked me lots of thoughtful questions, but uh, were both very supportive about writing the book. They think it's important. They obviously had a very up-close and personal experience with the criminal justice system, and both of them are you know, teachers and people who really believe in social justice. So a lot of the issues that are put forward in the book are very important to them on a personal level. Um, so they were very supportive. One of the things I loved about it as a reader was the tone I felt was so respectful toward the other inmates. Uh, even though in some cases there were some very private things or, or things that could have been exposing, um, there was always that a tone of, of respect. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the one of the snapshots that you sort of showed in there that really stuck with me was another inmate, um, Pom Pom. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a small part of the story, but you talk about her finding out from a guard, I understand, that the mother she had never met uh, had been in that same facility. And that just you know, kind of sent shivers through me as a reader. Um, can you tell me about that? You, were, you sort of witnessed that small moment in her life that said so much about the sadness of, of that cycle. There are a host of different examples in the book uh, that just came about in the course of our daily lives that really highlight some of the tremendous flaws in our criminal justice system. So you know, whether you want to talk about mental health problems, and there are many women that I did time with uh, and who are depicted in the book who struggle with mental health or mental illness, um, whether you want to talk about uh, really unnecessary cycles of incarceration, whether you want to talk about an individual person who cycles in and out of prison or jail, or the intergenerational cycles of incarceration, which are too true for you know our most vulnerable families and vulnerable communities. Um, those things are all things that I experienced and witnessed while I was incarcerated, and so it was just incredibly important and compelling to write about them. 
uh, because those human stories are the way that we actually understand what can be statistical or abstract in many ways when we talk about them in the news or if an academic person talks about them. I don't think there's any substitute for the lived experience and for a personal perspective. You also write uh, about a family day, which sort of illustrated some of those same points. What was that day like? As you said, you, you were not a, a person there having children visit, but you could feel. Family day, you know, children's day was this day that happened once a year. And so almost all, most women in prison are moms. And most of those moms are the moms of young children, children under the age of 18. And so the incarceration of a mother is really seismic for those families. Some of those mothers get to see their kids maybe every weekend or once a month in the visiting room if they're lucky, if someone on the outside is able to bring them to see their mothers. But there are definitely a lot of women locked up who rarely ever see their children. Children's Day happened once a year in the summer and it was a special day when children could be dropped off by a guardian to spend the day uh, you know unescorted with their moms and it, we would sort of create you know kind of a, a, a festival or a fair atmosphere which would be very familiar to any parent of young children with face painting and you know relay races and snacks but for these families it was a one day a year thing and incredibly incredibly poignant to see those families those moms and those kids really try to make the absolute most out of you know six or eight hours of time spent together in that relatively unconstrained way um, it was uh, something that I described as sort of uh, those those weather collisions of, of cold and hot you know it was like a collision of really wonderful emotions, but also incredible sadness. Coming up in a moment, we'll get into how Piper Kerman's life post-prison has played out, specifically how she's been working on trying to make change in the criminal justice system. I'm optimistic. I think that there has been a great deal of reform over the last 10 years because advocates have been working very hard for a long time, particularly communities of color, which have been so devastated by some of our poor choices when it comes to criminal justice. That and a reading from her memoir, Orange is the New Black, when talking with authors continues from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. Uh, shifting gears, of course, now, all anyone I'm sure it wants to ask you about is the series, right? <laughs> uh, and I only got to watch the first three episodes just to get a taste of it. Um, but, so you, you published the book in 2010. Uh, after that, how did the series evolve, or when did you start to hear rumblings of more interest in terms of a series or a possible movie or, or when did it start to go to that next? So the book was published in the spring of 2010 and when I was on book tour uh, I was in Los Angeles and so it was arranged for me to have lunch with Genji Cohan because she had read the book and she was interested in the book. Now anyone who's a fan of Weeds which ran for eight seasons on Showtime knows Genji Cohan and her work which is remarkable. 
it was fascinating to meet her. She asked what felt like millions and millions and millions of questions um, about the experience of incarceration, both high and low, meaning those big thinky questions like what kind of mind games do you play to sort of navigate and negotiate the time and the very slow passage of time to is there cheese? <laughs> so she was just really insatiably curious about the experience of incarceration in this setting and what is it like for women and how is that unique. And she said, I'd really like to do this as my next project. So I was thrilled. You know, I knew that she would do something provocative and interesting and uh, I, was, I was confident that she would do something really high quality with it and that was important to me. When you published the book, did you imagine that it would go to that next level and that next outlet, or was it a surprise, or was it something that you always felt the potential was there for it to, to become something? Yeah, I think every writer fantasizes success because, of course, you would never finish a book otherwise. It's too difficult. Um, uh, the setting of prison is obviously very compelling. It's very dramatic. There's a lot of conflict. There's incredible human stories. There's also constantly people arriving and departing. So in so many ways, it's a great setting for uh, a series particularly. And it's one of the only settings where you can actually bring dramatically different people together in a way that is not completely contrived. So it's no surprise to me that it makes a really ripe, rich set, you know, place for a, a series. And I think the fact of it being about women makes for a completely new cut at the material and is probably a big part of why Genji was interested. I understand that you and your husband sort of had some differences of opinion on whether or not it should be a movie versus a series. Is that true? Larry really thought, oh, it should be a film, it should be a film. I think it's great for it to be a series. I think it's really, you know, I think, again, the setting and also the material really lends itself to a series and I think the intimacy of television uh, is really important because it in, you know the viewers of the show invite these women into their lives again and again 13 hours over the course of a season and I think that that uh, intimacy with people who we don't necessarily always seek to be intimate with the identification with prisoners, the identification with people who have made mistakes but who are struggling to be better and are just sort of struggling to get through the day. Um, to me that's really important. What's it like to see your life fictionalized in a TV show? It's got to be. <laughs> uh, it's really interesting to watch the process of an adaptation. Um, I often say that they take the book and they put it in a blender and they add some more ingredients and they press liquefy. Uh, so, you know, there's all kinds of bits and pieces and ideas and settings from the book that get, you know, turned into something very different in the show, which is great. Um, I think it's a really smart adaptation. What was it like the, for the first time to see an actress on screen playing yourself? I remember we went to visit uh, the set during the filming of the first episode, and uh, I had not met Taylor Schilling yet. We watched them shoot a, a fairly complicated scene with five actresses, and it happens to be a scene which is fairly closely grounded in the book, uh, when Piper Chapman insults Red and her cooking, which is something that I did. <laughs> and I remember watching that scene and feeling a great sense of relief 
and really feeling like, oh, this is all going to be okay. Because I was so impressed by the work that Taylor was doing uh, and also the work that everyone else was doing on that set. You're actually an executive consultant on the series. What does that involve? I am a consultant on the series, and what that means basically is that I answer questions. And so at the very beginning of the season, when Genji and the writer's room are thinking about what this season might look like, I get a lot of questions. And once the scripting process happens, uh, I might get questions. I read the scripts. Um, I send feedback to Genji, and it's hers to take or leave or decide what to do with it. Um, and I really try to keep my feedback very focused on simply helping them make Litchfield a realistic world, helping them make it an authentic, minimum security federal prison for women. Because I think that's how I can contribute. They are very good at storylines and character development. Do you watch the show as a fan or as the person who experienced it? Or do you know what's coming? Are you, do you sort of do you wait to watch it until it's sort of been out there in the universe for a bit, or do you watch it as eagerly as, as the diehard fans? I watch the show with interest and with pleasure, and obviously with a somewhat unique eye. Um, the show makes so many departures from the true story which is told in the book that I don't watch the show and think, oh, that's me and that's my life, because Piper Chapman is really a creation of Genji Cohan's writing and Taylor Schiller, Schilling's acting. Um, one of the things that's most interesting to me personally is that I've read the scripts and so it's really interesting to see the, the words brought to life. Um, I like to wait until everything is in the can and the entire season is done and then you know I, I get a little preview before the rest of the world sees it. But it's really, really interesting to me to see how things go from the page to the screen. You've often said that it's an adaptation, it's, it's not an exact representation of the book. And one of the, the, the major differences is uh, the fact that in the series, uh, your character or, uh, it's funny to say Piper when you're sitting here, but <laughs> um, one of the major differences, of course, is that uh, the character of Piper in the series is serving time in the same facility as her ex-girlfriend mm -hmm. who was, uh, named Nora in, in the memoir, uh, but uh, Alex in the book, and that provides tension in the series, but of course was not necessarily the way things happened. Uh, so I spent 11 months in a minimum security camp in Danbury, and my ex-lover was not there. But then when I was sent to a federal jail to stand witness in a trial, my ex-lover was there, and in fact we ended up sharing a cell. So it's very different than what is depicted in this series, but there is even there, you know, that fundamental sort of uh, starting point of truth. In the memoir you talk about making peace with her and sort of the experience that led you both to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm very grateful for that sort of unexpected reunion uh, and confrontation because it really provided a very important point of closure for me and a recognition of my own responsibility and a relinquishment of blame for her. And she, of course, has said that she's working on her own memoir. Do you think you'll read it? Yeah, I mean, she has a very different story than mine. Uh, she was much more involved with you know, crime and with narcotics than I was. And she served a lot more time in prison. So I'm sure that there will be really interesting stories in her tale. So tell me about your life now. What's, a, what's an average day for you now in, in your post-prison life? Uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate that after I came home from prison, 
I had a safe and stable place to live. I had a job waiting for me. I started work the week after I came home from prison. Um, I had far fewer of the hurdles that most of the 700,000 people who are returning home from prison and jail every year in this country uh, are, are contending with. And so that's something that I thought a lot about before I wrote the book and while I wrote the book. Um, I'm also very lucky that I've been able to do public interest work, public interest communications work, since I came home. And I've worked on a lot of different issues, but I'm very grateful that one of the things that I've been working on for many, many years is communications with folks who are working to change our criminal justice system in ways uh, local and also national. And so that work continues, and it continues uh, in the states and also at the federal level because there's a lot of room for improvement. Uh, I'm optimistic. I think that there has been a great deal of reform over the last 10 years because advocates have been working very hard for a long time, particularly communities of color, which have been so devastated by some of our poor choices when it comes to criminal justice. Um, so we're seeing some improvement on numerous fronts, but you know, there's more work to be done. And the issue you, you've tackled over and over, of course, is the issue of mandatory minimums. Mm -hmm. Mandatory minimum sentencing schemes were really put in place starting in the 1980s. And they began in places like New York, where I live, and the federal government adopted them as well, and every state government copied those. So we've put millions and millions of Americans in prison over the course of the last 30 years for drug offenses. And the sad truth is that today, drugs are cheaper and more potent and more easily available than when we put those bad laws on the books. And so it's really time to stop doing what doesn't work. What will work? You know, of course, as, as you've mentioned too, the public supported mandatory minimums as some sort of possible solution mm -hmm. to deterring uh, people getting involved in the drug trade. Mm -hmm. um, what, what is the alternative? What, what do you think would work? I think that if we want to have less substance abuse and less addiction in this country, then we have to treat those issues as public health issues first and foremost. Uh, the criminal justice system will not solve substance abuse and addiction. Um, we know that these are difficult problems to tackle, but treating health problems as health problems is the only way that we're going to solve them. Um, what we know also about substance abuse and drugs specifically is that relatively small numbers of people are high consumers of drugs. So if we're able to create good health interventions for those folks who are heavy users, we do a lot to reduce demand. As long as there's demand for drugs, there's going to be supply. But punishing you know, people who are addicted to drugs or, or substance abusers by putting them in prison or jail doesn't help them get better. It actually usually makes them worse. A big part of your work today involves talking with young people, young adults. What do you think of that and, and, and why is that important? I am always really, really happy to talk to students. Um, students of all disciplines and all ages, but definitely particularly to young people. I think one thing that I always try to emphasize to young people is that if they follow my story, then one of the things that really emerges is that your actions in this world matter. And when you're young, sometimes it doesn't really seem like that's true. It doesn't seem like there may be all the consequences that you imagine. But also, young people are actually not that powerful in the world. You know, power gets accumulated by people as they get older. Um, but I try to emphasize that, you know, 
young people's actions in the world have a lot of impact and really matter a great deal, and so they should be thoughtful about that uh, and the impact that their actions have on others. Piper Kerman, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Piper Kerman on her life after prison and how she's using her story to help a new generation. Now to close out our podcast, here's a small reading from her book, Orange is the New Black, in her own words. I've been done with probation for many years, and now I hear from or about many of the remarkable women I met in prison. Some are married with new children or grandchildren and quiet lives. Some are working and going to school, hopeful about their futures. Some are ill and struggling. Some are activists who are determined to change the criminal justice system, and some have gone back into the system, back to prison. I can hear their voices and see their faces in my head, and sometimes on the subway I search the crowd, half expecting to see Natalie or Yoga Janet or any of the hundreds of women whose paths crossed mine. That's New York Times bestselling author Piper Kerman reading from her book, Orange is the New Black, My Year in a Women's Prison, from publisher Spiegel and Grau, Random House, during our interview with her in September of 2014. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking with Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host and producer of the video version of this program was Brenda Madden. Photography was by Cecil Corbett and DJ Rockwell. The editor and graphics were by Greg Kopp. The supervising producer was Julie Winkle. And production support by Jane Ballou and Helen Hedrick. HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast editor was Paul Langdon. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Special thanks to Maryville University and St. Louis Public Radio. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media.